Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Walks have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. Welcome to another podcast at SlyOffice.com, brought to you by the Operating Engineers Local 139 and Madison Teamsters Local 695. Joining us now, John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation. You probably thought I'd lead off with Donald Trump stuff, but frankly, yesterday, there was a far more important thing that happened, and I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Democracy was on the precipice before the United Mm -hmm. States Supreme Court, and they stepped back, John. Mm Mm-hmm. They stepped way back. Um, And, you know, for people that that have been following this, and I I would expect that first of this podcast probably are aware of of what's been in play, but there's been an effort by the right wing in America, right wing legal uh, institutions uh, on behalf, frankly, of the Republican Party, um, to create a circumstance where state legislatures could effectively uh, name the winner of a presidential election, right? No matter how the people voted, that they effectively and quote-unquote independent legislature could uh, define the results of elections and could also shape election processes in ways uh, that are even more aggressive and even more troubling than what we've seen up to this point. So it really was a fundamentally anti-democratic initiative. They claimed it was rooted in the Constitution. It's in a very uh, bizarre and narrow reading of the Constitution. They went to the court, and there were good people, good, serious analysts, who were afraid that this court, which has become increasingly partisan, increasingly right-wing, obviously, with Trump's appointees, that it, it might do the wrong thing. Instead, by a 6-3 uh, margin, 6-3 decision, the court did the right thing. It was a powerful slapdown to the anti-democratic forces that are seeking to use the courts and seeking to, you know, warp a reading of the Constitution uh, to try and narrow American democracy. And in fact, because it was a 6-3 decision slide, there's a, a really good chance that this issue has gone away, that, that this issue really is settled for another generation. And well, that's, that's a very thank good you. Thing. Thank you to Common Cause for going out and get, hiring the best. Uh, they got Neil yep. Cotthiel, who is, of course, a former solicitor general, who I think he's tried about 50 cases before the court. He's a frequent uh, guest on MSNBC. Yeah. He, he's got a key courthouse, yeah. yeah. He, he, uh, he's pretty good at this. Here's the argument he made before the court. On your show and talk about it. So what happened today is that the U.S. Supreme Court, by a 6-3 to three decision, rejected 
Donald Trump and the Republican Party's legal theories. So Trump in 2020, he lost those 60 cases in state court. And his theory was, well, state courts don't matter. And this is now the theory of the Republican Party. State constitutions don't matter. The only thing that matters, they say, is what state legislatures do. They can do anything they want, unconstrained by the Constitution, unconstrained by courts. To describe that legal theory, Lawrence, is basically to demonstrate how ridiculous it was because everyone who's taken seventh grade civics knows that there are checks and balances. And today, Chief Justice Roberts, joined notably by Trump appointees Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, said no. That's not our constitution. The constitution doesn't say legislatures can like, you know, do monkey games with polling places or with absentee ballots or, you know, have legislatures as Trump wanted totally displace the popular vote and send their own slate of fake electors to the electoral college in Washington, D.C.? No, you don't get to do that. That's what the chief justice said today on behalf of the Supreme Court. I imagine that Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch had civics classes. None of them are stupid people. Uh, and yet they still voted for this scheme that essentially would have given the authority of state legislatures in gerrymandered states like North Carolina, Wisconsin, Tennessee to essentially end democracy. Well, they could. They can override democracy. Right. And, and obviously that would end it. Um, and look, this is, as, as uh, the former Solicitor General said, this is what Trump wanted in 2020, the whole concept of the fake electors. And this is not a new construct. Uh, remember, I, years ago I wrote a book on the Florida recount fight in 2020, and the uh, head of the Florida... Wasn't that House, Jews for Buchanan? That was. Yes, indeed. The the argument that if you believe George Bush was actually elected president, then you have to believe that elderly garment workers who had been raised in the trade union movement and who were Jewish and settled in South Florida uh, decided to vote for Pat Buchanan, uh, which, of course, they didn't. It was badly designed ballots. It was a failure of the recount and, and the court's intervention that gave the presidency to George W. Bush and all the disasters that followed thereon. But in that book, one of the things I wrote about was a scheme hatched by Republican legislators in Florida who literally said, if the recount goes for Al Gore, we will simply, as the legislature, name a, a slate of electors and send them to Washington, and we will still declare Florida for Bush. And people laughed it off then 20 years ago, but that interpretation, that approach, has been very alive within the Republican Party uh, ever since. And obviously, you know, when Trump you know, went through all his machinations, it sort of exploded onto the scene. You know, I'm having and a vision. You know what I'm having a vision of? Yeah. Mm -mm. Catherine Harris. I'm having no, a vision of Kat and and I can't remember which comedian playing her on Saturday Night Live that did the Tammy Faye Baker makeup. I, I'm having a vision of Katherine Harris right now. What a flashback, John. And, of course, you and I both stood on the steps of the United States Supreme Court and protested that decision by the court, uh, well, yep. that back in 2001 during George Bush's inaugural. It was kind of funny. We were both in Washington. 
we're both in Washington there. We were both actually covering it, but obviously because we comment on things, we were stating our view, and our view was that, that George W. Bush was not elected president of the United States. He was installed as president by the court. So this is bottom line. Pause and take this in. We have for decades had a Supreme Court that has been troublesome, very troublesome on the issue of democracy. There's simply no question of that. Um, this decision this week by the court is one of the most encouraging steps in the right direction. Along with the Alabama redistricting decision, there is some evidence that John Roberts, uh, who is certainly no liberal, not even a moderate, he is a conservative, but that John Roberts has recognized that the court has gone too far and that the court has become, A, a very disrespected institution, one that is seen as dangerous by many Americans, and that there is a need to kind of move back toward some basic premises of democracy. And what's intriguing about this is, especially with Amy Coney Barrett voting uh, the right way uh, the other day, um, I think he has prevailed among some of the more partisan members of the court to recognize that if they don't start, you know, shoring up democracy, they run a really, a really great risk of so undermining their legitimacy that the American people will demand that more justices be appointed, that the court be expanded, things of that nature. Although, so I think you know, as we have this discussion, literally, <laughs> at 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning, June, let me look here, 28th, uh, the court become, could be coming down with a horrible case any moment. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, without, you know, and this is, sorry, this is the thing to understand. We're getting unbelievably bad decisions from this court. I believe in the expansion of the court. I think that it is entirely appropriate to do as Abraham Lincoln did and, you know, add justices to the court to create a, you know, a, a more proper reflection of, you know, the values of the American people and respect for the Constitution. I've said that for a very long time. Um, I think that opinion has, has become more alive in the land. There are more people that, that share that view as the court, as respect for the court has declined. But that doesn't change the fact that right now we should understand the court as being in a dynamic circumstance. It is, you know, they're wrestling with who they are. And remember, there's no group of people in Washington more political than the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, right? These are people who are deeply steeped in politics. They probably know it better and understand it better than just about anyone. And what's intriguing, again, is that Roberts, especially on these democracy issues, seems to want to you know, take some steps to build a coalition that maintains respect for, you know, basic premises of democracy. If that is true, then uh, even as you and I may object to many decisions from the court, he may well succeed in, you know, preserving the court's quote-unquote legitimacy um, through what is, is frankly, has been a very rough period for, for the bench. Uh, but that's what we're really seeing here. It's, uh, I, we're going to move on, but I, I want to move to our next topic. But I just let me just say this. It's a little ironic that Clarence Thomas, who has no trouble overruling what legislatures come up with around the country, no problem whatsoever. Uh, here he is with a lifetime appointment, siding with some notion that gerrymandered legislators in Republican states have no have no check or balance. It's really ironic. All right. So Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump. Here's the coverage of Donald J. Trump this morning and his reaction to the audio 
which takes us back to Nixon, uh, the audio of him uh, putting a noose around his own neck, metaphorically. Okay. Wait a minute, let's see here. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm-hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. secret. <laughs> this is secret information. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably think. I know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to Deep figure out a, a yeah. See, as president, I could have detlessed yeah. it. No, I can't, you know, but this is yeah, now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I had a whole desk full of lots of papers and mostly newspaper articles, copies of magazines, copies of different plans, copies of stories having to do with many, many subjects. And what was said was absolutely fine and very, very perfectly. We did nothing wrong. This is a whole hoax. We had a lot of papers, a lot of papers stacked up. In fact, you could hear the rustle of the paper. And nobody said I did anything wrong other than the fake news, which, of course, is Fox, too. Later in the day, Trump altered his defense once again in a conversation with reporters from Semaphore and ABC News. The former president claimed the plans he was referring to on the leaked tape were related to his real estate properties, not U.S. military plans for a potential attack on Iran. He told the journalist, quote, I would say it was bravado if you want to know the truth. It was bravado. I was talking and I was just holding up the papers and talking about them. But I had no documents. I didn't have any documents. Did I use the word plans? What I'm referring to is magazines, newspapers, plans of buildings. I had plans of buildings, you know, plans. I had plans of a golf course. I'm sorry. It's, um, Willie, I, he had me at, uh, you could hear the rustle of the papers, uh, of the Iran plans. I mean, he has such contempt for his voters or maybe just assumes they haven't heard the tape to suggest that what he calls explicitly on that tape from Bedminster two summers ago, a Defense Department document says, sometimes you just have to laugh at the absurdity, it's plans, excuse me, for a golf course, it's plans for one of the buildings that I've been working on. He also had, Mika, yesterday in one of his interviews, a bit of a self-affirmation telling himself that he's a legitimate person. Let's listen. You're not concerned then with your own voice on those on those recordings? My voice was fine. What did I say wrong on those recordings? I didn't even see the recording. Are there any other recordings that we should be concerned of? Uh, I don't know of any recordings that you should be re, uh, concerned with because I don't do things wrong. I do things right. I'm a legitimate person. There you go. There yeah. you go. Now, I know that was kind of a long clip, but I, you know, it kind of gives you the context of the absurdity of this. Well, I just want, I want Al Franken to interview Donald Trump in his Stuart Smalley character. <laughs> you know, I'm a good person. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, there's so much material there, Sly, that we could, we could take the rest of the day and discuss this. Um, first and foremost, it appears that Trump's defense against the revelation that, you know, he literally was bragging about having these documents to people, is that he was lying. Yes, bravado. Yeah, it was bravado. I was making stuff up when I was talking to people who are close to me about this stuff. So you shouldn't believe what I was saying 
in that context. You should believe what I'm saying now when I'm trying to protect myself from major prosecution, right? And, you know, I, I, I am not, haven't tried any jury trials or anything like that, but, but my sense is that might not come off that well to a jury or to a judge. Well, it sounds, it sounds maybe just a little suspicious. Does he understand the people that were in that room with him? I have no doubt have been in front of the grand jury. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't think Jack Smith has skipped that? By the way, the documents that, that are in question in this, he's not even being charged with this one. Nope. That happened at Bedminster. This is kind of being introduced as his state of mind. They're not even charging him yet. With this one, I maybe yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it looks to me, and I've been watching this relatively closely. It looks to me like Jackson is opening up a Bedminster examination. Well, right. You know, Jack that. Smith is is sitting. This is metaphorically. This is like Jack Smith sitting at a restaurant, and he opens the menu, and everything. He's got so many options because he likes everything on that menu. It all looks good. The guy's just yep. got a plethora of stuff, and most of it is provided by Donald Trump. Well, pretty much all of it. And now here's the, here's the interesting thing about that, too, that um, Smith does have that menu, right? But remember this also. He's the equivalent of a great you know, food critic or something like that. He has so much experience in doing high-stakes trials, you know, literally with war criminals and, and people around the world, that um, that he can look at that menu and, and, yes, see everything he might want, but amidst it, see that which he should have, right? That which he needs, you know, and that which will work. And so you've got this, this sort of double uh, whammy, if you will, for, for Donald Trump, and that is that the material is there to prosecute him, and it's starting to look like, I think when you really look at Jackson's record, you've got somebody who is probably more capable of organizing that prosecution. Remember, a good prosecution is not done in the courtroom. It's done before. You organize it so that when you go into the courtroom, you've got everything in place. Somebody who's so skilled at organizing that prosecution that with all this material coming forward, um, it's looking kind of worse every day for Donald Trump. We'll take a break. John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation with us at SlivesOffice.com. Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Ford Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Wachs have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. That's GTWlawyers.com. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. 
We're back at sliceoffice.com. John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation with us. Also, our friends from Madison Computer Work sponsor sliceoffice.com, as well as Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Fort Atkinson. All right, so you ever wonder why people like Marjorie Taylor Greene exist? Uh, she's obviously lived in an age where she grew up watching Fox News. Here's First of all, here's Marjorie Taylor Greene. .com. I partnered with our GOP chairwoman, Elise Stefanik from New York, and we are going to expunge the impeachments of President Trump. And I'm very glad to let you know that the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, came out in support. So how does that exist? Well, let me tell you. Uh, Fox, this is just a few snippets from Fox this week. Remember your friend Stephen Miller? Remember that guy from I, Santa Monica? He's got the best hair. Okay, here he is. We've seen this for seven long years, Sean, where the federal government, when it is persecuting, when it is going after, when it is trying to frame President Trump, they selectively leak in order to manipulate news stories, to try to poison the narrative, to try to create a false impression. And they've been doing this over and over and over and over again. Because the security state is very skilled at psychological warfare. They're skilled at the art and artistry that's often deployed in foreign countries of how to control the narrative in our country. My message to the American people is don't fall for it. We have been watching them try to play us year after year after year, going all the way back to the Russia hoax. Then, of course, remember the Ukraine hoax. Remember in the election year, remember the Russian bounty story, where Trump was letting Russia get away with putting bounties on our troops. Then it comes out later, that was a fake story. And, of course, we remember what they did to suppress the Hunter Biden story, and now what they are doing and have been doing to shield Joe Biden from accountability for his influence peddling with his son, Hunter. Don't believe your ears or your eyes. Or, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's sort of the last defense of the scoundrel, right? And, and boy, if you're looking for a scoundrel, uh, Stephen Miller pretty much, uh, you know, tops the list. Um, you know, look, uh, this is the circumstance that we're in. And it is, a, it is a difficult circumstance, right? Because we do live in an age where there is an immense amount of lying. Right. And there's an immense amount of manipulation. Um, and, you know, we do get to this core question of whether you're going to believe um, career prosecutors, people who've actually been very, very cautious in this prosecution, in this pursuit of these issues. But also, um, you know, we go back to the, the core of the, the question here, which is Marjorie Taylor Greene's argument for expungement. Right. And and. The, the thing of impeachment is impeachment is impeachment, right? There's not in the Constitution a, a clause that says, yeah, and if a couple of years later the other party takes control of the House of Representatives, you can expunge this. Donald Trump has been impeached. He was impeached by the House of Representatives twice during his presidency. That's important to understand. Now, what Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about is after his presidency, expunging it. That would be like if, you know, somebody came along and said, you know, I, I think Andrew Johnson was a better guy than we thought. <laughs> and so I want to go back and expunge Andrew Johnson's impeachment from back in the 1860s. 
Well, A, Andrew Johnson wasn't a better guy than, than we thought. He, he was worse. Guy. <laughs> he was worse. Yeah, it was. He's in competition with Andrew Jackson for, and Donald Trump, the worst president in history. Um, and, and yet. What about, like, what about James Buchanan? How can you leave him out of that? You know, you know he, I, he was our first. Well, I, I won't go there. Buchanan was neglectful and flawed in many, many fundamental ways. But, um, I'm sorry, Andrew Johnson literally, as President of the United States, set in motion uh, what would become 100 years of Jim Crow segregation. His actions, his failure to see through Reconstruction in a meaningful and, and realistic way was very, very harmful at a critical stage in our history. So he doesn't get off the hook. But bottom line is, you can't expunge that reality, you know? Um, and and there's something in this notion that of quote unquote expungement. There, there's something here that that very um, that relates to that which we used to criticize back in the 1970s and 1980s. You know, you look at the Soviet Union and you'd say, well, they're rewriting history, right? They're writing people out of history, or they're writing people into history, or they're they're recasting things in ways that that just isn't honest. And and that's what's going on here. It's going to be very interesting to see what could happen if, if they actually got a vote on this. And in some ways, I kind of hope they do get a vote on it, because A, the debate would be fascinating. It would highlight, you know, a lot of details about Trump. Uh, B, it would attach the Republican caucus in Congress to Trump, right? It would attach them more thoroughly than, than ever before. And C, I wonder if all Republicans would vote for it. Well, I'm pretty sure... Oh, no. I'm pretty sure Derek Van Orden wouldn't. He has shown a, uh, uh, he's not a great guy. He's a bad guy. But he, I notice he's really staying, there's an article about him today uh, in the paper. He uh, he is staying away from the Jim Jordan stuff. Yeah. Well, this is, and, and I want to I think you, maybe because he wants to be reelected. What do you think? Well, there's, yeah, <laughs> there's a couple things at play here. What? There are a couple of principled members of the Republican caucus who I think might, you know, there's still some people in well, there. I didn't say he was principled. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying But I'm saying there are a couple of principled members of the Republican caucus. So there you've got a couple of votes right there. Then you've got another portion of people who live in districts that either voted for Biden or the, that are very closely divided who are going to be up for election in a presidential election year 2024. When you put together the handful of principled members with the somewhat larger number of people who are scared, right, who are politically scared, um, I'm not sure... We'll see. But I'm not sure Marjorie Taylor Greene would have a majority for this. Let's talk about what happened in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing happened in Chicago. Uh, yep. Big okay. cities. I'm not going with the sort of moderate candidate or center-right candidate. Going with the progressive candidate. Last year, in the, the election of Eric Adams, whatever year he got elected, uh you know, uh, it looked like, and what happened with Buffalo, it looked like cities were taking a little step back and going or sticking with moderate mayors. This time, Toronto, which is a big amalgamated city, which means the suburbs are, are part of the city, so it's not that liberal. Right. But isn't it the largest city in North America? Yeah, 2.7 million people um, in Toronto. So here is uh, CBC's coverage of Olivia Chow's election. How are you? Freshly elected and now mounting a different kind of campaign, Mayor-elect Olivia Chow is appealing for help to bail out her city. 
In order to build a strong Canada, you need a livable and affordable and healthy Toronto. And right now, Toronto has some problems. Many agree those problems involve affordability, a lack of housing and deteriorating public transit. Practically, what uh, she can do, we will see now. We need a fresh start. On the campaign, Chow pledged to address those concerns, but now faces a billion-dollar hole in the budget. That deficit it came from the previous administration. Despite low tax rates, high property values lead Toronto homeowners to pay a lot, and Chow is warning they'll need to pay more. Though mixed reviews at City Hall may signal a battle ahead. We need to raise property taxes, not by you know the huge amounts that were being talked about. This is an expensive city, and that's been on everyone's mind. The mayor-elect is also asking for more money from Ottawa and from a premier who said this just last week. If Olivia Chow gets in, it'll be unmitigated disaster. Despite that comment, Doug Ford was among the first to call and congratulate Chow. We're going to find common ground uh, when we sit down because... She's uh, actually quite a nice person. Toronto's first racialized person to be elected mayor. Chow took a question in Cantonese. Both she and her late husband, Jack Layton, sought this job before. Now this is her city to lead. All right. So, by the way, they're nicer in Canada. Conservatives saying something nice. Uh, per, that, that would not be Donald Trump's reaction. Yeah, and, and I should emphasize that people you know, and, and some of your listeners will, people who know the uh, Fords, uh, you know, that was really nice for... <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's a very good politician, by the way. He's a very able, very skilled politician. Uh-huh. So, uh, who did not take the Trump route during the pandemic, which is how he got reelected. So, you tell me, uh, are we at a dawn of a new era in urban America? Are we beginning to see a change? I, I think we are. And, and look, I think it's a change that comes on a, on a variety of levels. And one thing to understand is that now, uh, even though COVID's still around, we are in, I guess, what we would call the post-pandemic era. And we're looking at a, a lot of questions about how you run big cities, right? Because cities were in the forefront of dealing with the pandemic, frankly, in the forefront of dealing with, you know, most of the issues that, that most immediately impact people. And, and I think that, that folks are really wrestling with this question of how do you manage a big city? And one of the re- realizations there is, first, you, you know, in a multiracial, multiethnic city, um, you have to have leadership that gets it. That doesn't mean that leadership has to be of any particular race or any particular background, but it does mean that you need people who understand the diversity of these cities. And I think that in both Chicago and in uh, Toronto, you saw leaders, candidates in, in Brandon Johnson and Olivia Chow who got it, who understood the, the whole rich diversity of these great cities. But then at the same time, you also need people who are not kind of locked in a 1970s mentality that says, you know, if you've got crime, and you do have crime, and if you've got housing affordability issues and all those other challenges, you don't just hand it over to, um, you know, the the old answers, right? You don't just say, oh, we're going to do it the way Richard Nixon would have done it, or we're going to do it the way Lester Pearson would have done it in Canada or something like that. No, you need to have an innovative ways of, of approaching things. And I think that, that what we're seeing 
seeing is that many of these skilled and experienced progressive candidates, um, and Brandon Johnson was that. He had he did have background as a county elected official, as a longtime labor organizer, teacher, stuff like that. Olivia Chow, even more experienced school board and parliament and things of that nature. You know, these these experienced progressive leaders are coming into these races and saying, look, there are ideas that we haven't tried. There are approaches that we ought to do. And people are, are open to that, especially younger voters. One final thing. It's notable that Olivia Chow was attacked as being a socialist. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal had a, a scare headline, because uh, they, they often tell Canada what to do. Um, they had a scare headline the day before the election, you know, that, that is Toronto going to go socialist or something like this? And Toronto looked at it and said, yeah, we don't mind somebody who was in the NDP, who was in our social democratic party, whose husband, late husband, was leader of that party. In fact, uh, we recognize that in big cities, um, social democrats, people who really do believe in, in strong government, acting on behalf of the great majority of people, even if that involves taxing the rich and taxing the powerful, um, that that can be a good thing. And so, yeah, I do think that while I wouldn't call it necessarily, uh, I wouldn't be so simplistic as to call it a trend, uh, because I think there's always, every city is different. I do think we're starting to see signs that the media folks and the political pundits who told us, oh, yeah, everything's going to the right. Everything is going toward a more conservative approach to urban affairs. I don't think that's the case. And remember, we don't just have these cities. We also have Los Angeles, which elected a progressive mayor last year, uh, and a number of other cities across the country where, in fact, we have seen progressive results. Gary, Indiana's thrown out two incumbents in a row. Yeah, well, because Gary's struggling to try and figure out how to deal with some stuff, right? And look, it is not easy running big cities, right? It, it's, it's probably more challenging in many ways than being a governor. John, um, John Lindsay used yeah. to say that being mayor of New York was the second toughest job in America. Mm-hmm. I think there's simply no question of that. It, being mayor, uh, look, at, being, look at Brandon Johnson. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Uh, that you had so many people line up to run for mayor of Chicago, because Chicago has a lot of challenges, right? It's not an easy job. And yet Brandon Johnson ran, uh, came from behind, and basically said, look, I'm ready to take this on. I'm ready to give this a try. And people trusted him. They trusted a young, dynamic leader, very much in the tradition of Harold Washington, um, to try and, and sort of renew that, that progressive approach in Chicago. I think we're going to see, I think we'll see more of this around the country. The question, Fly, is not so much is this going to happen in cities, because I think it will, and it, I think it does. The question is whether this starts to bubble up to the state level, um, where you start to see more progressive figures become governors of states around the country. And, and that's, that's the big transition point, because uh, it's, the states don't do the immediate delivery of services the way that cities and counties do. But the states do the delivery of money, and it's that, that money, that shared revenue, that becomes such a critical thing. Well, we, uh, we could have brought Milwaukee into this equation and their negotiations yep. with the state. And I see today that the county executive, Executive Crowley, uh, David Crowley, has said that uh, five, years, five years from now, Milwaukee County's on the fiscal cliff. So these problems are absolutely still ahead of us. By the way, one thing Elaine Chow said later in an interview on that same newscast is that she wants Canada to get back in the business of building housing. 
Yep. And public uh, housing. Yep. Because you know, frankly, uh, capitalism is what's driving people out of cities with these outrageous yeah. r- rental rates. You know, capitalism is supposed to work for people, not landlords. And and what's happening is it's killing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't purchase. have said that. Well, there, yeah, I think you're right, though. I mean, Bernie Sanders and I wrote a book about that. Um, but, look, it, this this approach that we've got now is is killing what makes cities great. Cities are great because of their racial and ethnic and social diversity, right? That you can go from neighborhood to neighborhood and, and, and sample, you know, the, the foods and the music and the, and the styles of the whole world. Right and and have people from all these different backgrounds living in this place and hopefully living harmoniously. Um, what we're seeing in places like San Francisco is it's becoming so expensive that you're driving out the people who actually made San Francisco a dynamic and exciting city. It's becoming you know more an amusement park for the rich. Um, you don't want that to happen to Toronto. You don't want that to happen to Chicago. And the and you also don't want a circumstance where cities are simply the very poor and the very rich. What you want is, you know, an economic diversity. And the way you get that is with planning. And if capitalism doesn't choose to plan, and it often doesn't, you quote-unquote leave it to the market, then government and society needs to plan. And that planning doesn't mean that everything is public housing, but it may mean that you have a lot of cooperative housing. It may mean that you have public-private partnerships. It may mean that you have private housing, but it's done with some sense of social responsibility and some sense of investment. But the bottom line is, this is this is what we call fly. And I'll pause so we can emphasize the word thinking. And the fact of the matter is, we've had too many elected leaders in this country and in Canada who don't think; they just go on autopilot. What Olivia Chow is offering in, in Toronto is a leader who promises to think and to try and come up with real solutions. Let me just add here at the end, hooray for the city of Madison for finally saying no to another development on State Street that would tear old buildings down. And it's in the Capital Times today. Congratulations. John Nichols, thanks for reading. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. That's another edition of Sly'sOffice.com. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye bye.